Welcome to the Big Screen Symposium 2018 podcast. The Big Screen Symposium took place in Auckland on the 26th and 27th of October. Please note, while many of the speakers used clips in their sessions, we've edited these out to better suit the podcast. Kenyan filmmaker Wanuri Kahu uses her recent short film Pumzi to illustrate the research techniques and decision-making process she used to create a distinct futuristic world on a low budget. She explains the rudimentary tools and special effects techniques she used to bring this world to life. Hi, it's so great to be here. And it's so curious just to be the person talking about world building in a place where so many worlds are built. <laughs> I mean, truly New Zealand is, I mean, Pete's dragon, you know? Um, there's, so many place, there's so many places that have been used to create such amazing worlds. So it's truly an honor to be here and be speaking about that. But I think that I'm already speaking to the converted because you, you've, you've been doing this, you know? Um, in a way that I haven't been and I'm trying to still. But either way, I just thought that we would um, just speak a little about why it's important to world build and how to create worlds, perhaps. The reason that I asked for, for Pumzi to be screened is because I wanted to use it as an example of how I built this very particular world um, and open up a conversation about how, how we can do that. Uh, I'm not sure what, what kind of conversations people want to involve in, but I'd love this to be interactive so that we can just get to um, truly what, what we, the collective, want to speak about rather than what Winery Kahio wants, wants to share. We made Pumzi in um, 2009, and at the time, uh, it, it was created as a result of, of, of a couple of things. First was my uh, absolute hate for bottled water. Truly, I hate bottled water <laughs> because it just takes, it takes more water to make the bottle than the water in the bottle, which I think is a ridiculous thing, you know. Um, so I started to imagine, so it started as a, I hate bottled water, okay, cool. So, and then it's, it began um, uh, uh, in my head, a conversation with myself about this couple who goes into the countryside on a weekend getaway and on their way back, they purchase fresh air to bring back into the city right? Um, and I was like, yeah, that's going to be my film. And then I started doing a workshop and they were like, that's not, that's actually, that's not a film. That's a premise. I was like, oh, okay, cool. So then let's, let's get into the kind of world that they're going into. So we started to then build out this world that they, they had to bring fresh air back to. I'm sure with many creators, when you're building, you, you think that you're like, you're like super special and you're just like, these thoughts, nobody has ever had them in their lives. You know what I mean? And then it's unfortunate because then you start to do research and you realize that everything that you imagined has already been done. So when, so by the time I started, I was like, oh yeah, fresh air. Oh my gosh. Imagine people paying for fresh air. Google oxygen bars. And then later on, it became self-power generators, right? And then I found that there was many places that had already started creating this kinetic energy, self-power generator things that were powering um, either gyms or, or rooms. And I thought that was really cool as well. But I also wanted to kind of like follow that conversation to, to, to like the end of it. And for me, the end of that conversation was 
Yes, we are creating this world where uh, we are self-power generators. Yes, we are creating this world where we, where we believe in recycling. Um, but, uh, but at what point do we start to have conversation between humanity and saving and saving in humanity? And what is the relationship between uh, mothering Mother Nature, which is what I was trying to do. As, uh, uh, Asha was mothering Mother Nature and, and mothering ourselves at the same time. Um, because we are our, our most destructive force, right? So if we're our most destructive force, this is where it gets super crazy in my head, then wouldn't it just make more sense if we kind of isolated ourselves into one, be- one space where we can completely ruin ourselves and then just leave Earth to kind of take care of itself at the same time? So that's like a really twisted part of myself saying, yeah, that makes sense. So I created three really twisted women who run the Maito community, which is the community indoors, whose job was to keep human beings away from nature. So they convinced the human beings that the outside was dead so that nobody ever goes outside so that they can keep nature for themselves or they can keep nature in a different space where it can, it can rejuvenate itself and humans don't have to be a part of that because that's sensible. <laughs> And if women were going to be these people who were doing this, then how would they control the inside world? Because I have a mother and I have become a mother and and guilt becomes like a a second language. So they would control it with guilt, you know? So this whole idea of do your part. If you don't do your part, you're you're not being true to the community. You're not being true to, you know what I mean? That became part of the conversation because if I was in charge (laughs) and I had to persuade (laughs) and I had to persuade people to do things that they would normally shy away from I would probably do it using guilt as well (laughs) as well as many other emotions right because that's just natural and so we started to create these three characters and these three characters for me were a were a representation of what was happening uh, in in lots of African countries which is we have the same leaders of different ages doing the same thing and for me it wasn't even a conversation about gender at that point it was a conversation about power what what happens when people in power start to repeat the same things that the last people in power were doing. How do we kind of break that cycle? So it started becoming a conversation about ruling the inside world that we have lied to people exists because the outside is dead and doing that for their own sake and using guilt and manipulation to be able to do that. That began to be my first step into creating, into creating this world, right? Um, and... As a result of creating this world, and because I'm so fascinated with science fiction and fantasy, I've been listening to many other people and how they create worlds. So I've been, uh, been obviously researching uh, my favorite writers like Octavia Butler, um, N.K. Jameson, um, Nadia Carrefour, and how they begin to unpack their knowledge and, and some of the knowledge that doesn't actually, it's going to sound strange, doesn't exist within them but still comes from them, and how they use that knowledge to create the worlds that they create. And there's something super interesting about world building, especially in science fiction and fantasies, because you're inviting people into secondary worlds. If this is our primary world, we're inviting people into the secondary world, and we're asking them to trust us. 
because that's all you're beginning to create when you start a relationship of, of world building is that you're creating a space of trust where either your actors can play and feel like they, 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 they believe and they trust in the world that they're in. But at the same time, where you can invite an audience in and they believe the rules of the world and they believe exactly what you're trying to tell them. Um, I think that um, I have a great advantage, as many other indigenous people do when, when they come from the spaces that they live in, is that we have the ability to tap into our past. And that's why, for me, African futurism, or what is called Afrofuturism, I'm sure it's called many different things when it's not white, futurisms, is that when we start to talk about those things, we're really just tapping into what other people have always considered science fiction, but we know to be fact. Now we begin to separate our spiritual selves and find it very awkward to talk about our spiritual selves as part of storytelling, but is a very comfortable thing to do when you're creating, when you're creating futurism work. Is, is, is a lovely space because for the first time we can just lean into our past and we can lean into our stories and we can lean into our belonging and say this is what we're using to create worlds without actually having to say it. So when we were creating um, Pumzi, there's a lot of spiritual things that I, lent in, I was leaning into. One of the ideas was the ideas of, of women being in power because there have been many, 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 many instances of matriarchal systems within Africa, and I wanted to refer to that. The other was, was, was how I use um, the language, right? So the, the community is called the Maito community. Maito means mother, so it's the mothering community. But what Maito also means is it's Maito is made up of two words, ma, which means truth, ito, ours, our truth. So our mothers are our truth. So using the language, I started to create our truth. And then I used that as a metaphor for what people knew and what people did not know and what was considered true and what wasn't considered true. I started looking at language and breaking down language in order to be able to create the story of what our truth meant. I used uh, the conversation about Earth, right? Our relationship with Earth. Uh, because uh, having studied um, African religions or Af African mythologies or African belief systems, the, the Trinity is, is a different thing. The Trinity is man, God, and land, so at what point was that trinity broken and, and we became separate from land? And so that was part of the conversation that I was having is at what point do we feel so integrated to our land that we are willing to sacrifice? Like we are actually literally willing to sacrifice our last drops of water to be able to nurture something that outlives us. At what point do we give back to earth so that we know that the relationship that we have with it will not be realized in our, in our lifetime, will probably be realized in our children's lifetimes or in our children's children's lifetimes? When does that become a conversation that is comfortable to have? When does that become a conversation that is, that is important to have? And of course, this film was greatly influenced by Wagari Mathai, who was a, a, a Nobel laureate. She planted trees. And because she planted trees, she got into lots of trouble. Because inevitably, when you're planting trees, you're having conversation about land, 
land rights and land issues. Who owns the land that you can plant the tree on? And she came into a lot of conflict with the then dictator, President Moy, and was, was jailed. She really had a hard time as a result of it. Um, and, and she always said that the, the, the best thing that you can do is plant a tree, but you knowing that it's the most selfless act because you may not ever see the benefit of that tree. You may never like reap the rewards of that tree. So it was also starting that conversation with our relationship with Earth and our relationship with reciprocity. At what point do we have a conversation with Earth that gives as much as it receives? So that's how we started having the conversation about world building. But then, because it was a super low-budge film, we had to kind of figure out how to do it. What we did is that everything was shot on location. Every single thing was shot on location except for the, the, anything that appeared on the screen right? Um, we didn't have much money. So what we did is that Asha's lab is actually a parking lot. And if you're super careful, you can actually see the parking base on the floor. <laughs> and because we didn't have enough money to dress the whole set, we only dressed half the set at any one point. So any wide shots, we, we, we dressed half the set, we would break the set, move it over, and then dress it again, and then shoot it again from the wide shot in a locked frame. We did the same thing with the exercises. We only had two exercise bikes. <laughs> so we just multiplied them. We just shot, multiply, and then we would and we'd break it, and then we'd put the exercise bikes again, and then we'd, we'd, we'd shoot more. All this was shot in a parking bay. And if you're super careful, you can sometimes see that. This was not a blue screen. This was a window, so we had to just cut this out. That was the most major bit of proper indoor CGI that we did. The budget of this film was $35,000, and that was after, like, proper push and pull. So we didn't have that much to work with. We kind of, like, used those techniques over and over and over to be able to, to world build. The research that I did to create this world took about two years, even though it's a 22-minute film. Because I, I needed to understand... The, in the future, what the ratio of men and women would be, right? If there'd be more men than women. Um, research says there'll be more women. Great. Actually, there'll be more gender-ambiguous people, which I thought was also really interesting. Some of it had to do with the hormones that we drink in our, in our food or the amount of hormones that we have in our food at the moment and how it's actually going to change sexuality in the future and how it's actually going to change who we, how we identify and, and what, how we reproduce or who we reproduce as a result. Also, we had to start to, to create the, the idea of the social systems, right? And because this world was so reliant on water, the more water you had, water was, was equivalent to wealth. So the more water you had, the more wealthy you were, the less you needed to recycle, the higher up you were in society. And obviously you were punished by your need to um, exercise and regenerate for the community. The other thing that we did was um, we did lots of research on the costume because I wanted to understand, I, I feel like we never got this right, but what kind of fabric would you need that would absorb enough water to be able to displace enough water when you squeezed it? Right, so we did a lot, lots of research on that. What that would look like. She was bald, and they're all bald because you have a larger surface area to be able to 
to wipe and to recycle water. So we asked the actress to cut her hair for this, for this film, which is extraordinary, and she did. She looks gorgeous, so she, she managed to pull it off. Every, every conversation we had as we moved through the different departments became a very solidified conversation. Uh, because we knew that it was about recycling and mostly about recycling water, then moving through every different department, from the, from the art department to the cost department to everything, it became a conversation about how can we utilize this space in the best way to recycle everything that we need. And it got the whole crew into a space of thinking about how to recycle, how to, how to create a space where we are recycling, um, how to create surfaces, how to create textures, how to create uh, conversations. Everything was about recycling. So it really, it, it, it really helped kind of streamline everybody into one common goal. And that goal was trying to figure out how to recycle um, what they needed to recycle. Um, so that was another huge space that we kind of concentrated on was the costume and how it speaks to the theme. The other thing that we did is I started speaking to lots of professors and futurists at this time when I was creating this film about how they saw the world um, progressing. That's always some of my favorite bits is, is trying to find out people who are the specialists in that subject and then, and then figuring out how to get what you need from them because you don't always get the right answers. But, but you, if you ask the right questions, you can start to probe about the possible things that you can create in the world that you're creating, which is one of the spaces that I think that is, for me, is the most phenomenal um, because you start to you start to work with many different people. And as a result of making Pumzi, I was then put in touch with a soil futurist who starts to consider the different futures of soil and how and what soil will look like in the future, but also the kind of nanotech that will exist as a result of how we, how we interact with soil, which is really interesting. And have since created um, an excerpt um, of, of writing on future soils where he, the technologist, and, and I, the filmmaker, came together to talk about the futures of soil, which was really interesting as a result of Pumzi. So I feel like as, uh, it, it started to create a world that started to then create itself in, in many different ways. Um, but I would, I would love to open it up because I'm not sure exactly what you'd love to talk about because... You, you are legends in your fields already. Um, <laughs> and I'd love to be able to open it up and speak more accurately to, to what you'd like to hear. So if there's any questions about world building, I'd, I'd love to start having a conversation about it or what spaces that you're looking at or what spaces you're interested in. Sorry? USD. Yeah, US dollars. Yeah, it's thirty-five thousand dollars. Yeah. So a lot of our exterior shots were actually shot on location as well. So what we did is, and I'll show you. I'll pull it up. When those were all location. Um, so right here, when she. So we. This is a really small. Uh, it's a very small scalable mountain. 
<laughs> that we shot the edge of. And the only thing that we CGI'd was that in the distance. And because she was against the ledge of, of, of the actual mountain, we didn't have to do anything else. Um, and because we truly did have no budget, we used the sky a lot as a blue screen. <laughs> so... <laughs> Because you can't beat a, you know, a sky as a blue screen, you know. Um, so because she was against that edge, we never had to rotoscope anything. Everything was clearly defined on that side. Um, here, this is actually uh, um, in this in uh, this is actually you know the the no not laundry you know the what are they called when you're when when in in the kitchen those. The but yeah, those lifts. That's what that was. So we used that, and then when we cut to her going outside, all she had to do was just climb through what looked like a trap door at the top, and then. Um, so you see, we managed to get away by just shooting down. You never have to kind of cut to anything, and the only time is here. Because the only thing that was there was this frame and this, this kind of like machine thing there. That was all. And then the rest was blue sky. So we managed to CGI that because it was against blue sky again. Um, yeah. So that's, yeah. All that was against blue sky. So we managed to do that pretty easily. Yeah. But this is like super, super budge, budge, <laughs> indie, 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 science fiction filmmaking. <laughs> and and, and, and part, a lot of the research that I did when I was creating this was I did a lot of research on, on the original Supermans. Because when you, when you read how the, like the older Supermans were made, they were really basic. They were so basic. Um, and and the tricks the tricks that they used a lot of it had to do with either perspective, or I mean it was great. So that that was it was it was it was the best learning to use that to be able to recreate some of the same tricks that we did we had in this um, when we were creating Pumzi. Well, we I mean um, we ended up using. Honestly, we, it was it was it was pretty basic. Um, so we ended up we, we edited on on Final Cut at the time, right? Um, and then we the only thing that was really interesting was the the camera that we we were shooting on was uh, was was still was prototype. It was it's called the Si two K. And it was only shot. Uh, it was oh, it was the, we used this on the prototype, and then it was shot to. It was used to shoot. Um, oh snap! Slumdog Millionaire was the other film. Um, but for editing, we just used really basic. It was like After Effects, and and um, like it, it wasn't. We didn't have anything fancy. It was super, super, super basic. Okay. Um, the question was about how uh, the research around media. And that was really interesting because we, it, it was, um, 
what I find, and I still find, is that w- what was happening more often than not is that um, I was always trying to communicate in a way that was not emotive but was functional. And I found that, that that was the way of the future because we're living in a very futuristic functional space where dreams are suppressed because they, are, they lead to emotion. And emotion was not an effect. It, didn't, it, it wasn't effective. And because it wasn't effective, so they would find ways of communicating that were very plain and very unemotive, you know? So they would type into the computer and the words would be read in a, in, in, a, in a way that had, I tried to make it devoid of emotion so that there was not much inflection in what they were saying and what they were saying was actually what they meant, right? But also because we were, there's, 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 a, there's a short story I love by E.M. Foster called The Machine Stops. It was written in 1919, but is, is an incredible story and, 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 and also influenced the way this was 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 written and and in the story it's about these people who live in capsules by themselves and that was the same thing that I was trying to create is that we 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 decide that our privacy or our spaces are more important than human interaction or or any interaction with you know, with, with, and with the community that we live with. So as a result, the only interaction that people would have, the only time you hear their, their, their voices were when they're, in, when they're interacting with, with somebody that they're approved to interact with, right? And this, this all came from now, like, doing lots of research about uh, the futures of technology, the future of how we communicate as a result of technology, the result of speaking in 140 characters, um, what that does, and also predicted text um, and how we use it now. Um, and, a lot of, and a lot of research has come out saying that the reason that... Um, uh, uh, there, there are many tests that are unable to tell if we're human or computer when we talk is not necessarily because we are unable to tell, but because we are, stay with me, but because we are being taught by computers how to communicate by the use of predicted text, right? So when we start writing emails and it starts to tell you what to say, right? And it's easier for us to click on what, what is being suggested. Then when we actually start to speak, we're only using the limited vocabulary that the computer has in it. And therefore, we begin to mimic the computer in the same way. So that was also some of the things that I was doing here was about the conversations about tech and the conversations about how tech limits our language. So it was very staccato. It was very short. It was very efficient you know, as a result of it. So that, that, was, that was the research that I started exploring as a result of our, our interaction with how we use our phones and how we use our tablets and how we use our computers. In your process, did you write the story first? And then, or did you write and imagine what you wanted and go seek it? Because if you're, you're creating a world, so if you have the script first and then don't limit yourself by what's I, I write in many different ways. So uh, because I've become obsessed with a story when I'm making it, um, so I'll, I'll write a, a synopsis, which is crap, right? I'll then write a very, very bad first draft of a script, and then I'll write a treatment after I've written the script, 
right? Because it's easier for me to think in script before it is to think in anything else, right? Uh, And then as I work on the script, I continuously adapt the treatment. But at the same time, because I'm obsessed with that world, I I always carry a notebook for each world. And I'll start to jot down ideas and research in that notebook about particular areas of that world. So if it's about clothes, then I'll do lots of research about the clothes. I'll have a million tabs open on my computer just about clothes. And then I'll just feed them into, for some reason, it's always easy for me to write. Right? Yeah. So then I write all my information down. And then when I'm speaking to whoever the head of department is, I'm speaking based on off, off of the research that I also have um, uh, these days, I do it in different ways. Um, I use uh, uh, either Trello or where I'm able to put ideas down or, or Pinterest is actually super great for me now when I'm world creating because I'm able to do little spaces on, on different world creating. And then I share those boards with, um, with, with the heads of departments. But it's, it's, it's a continuous process because what you research begins to influence what, you, what you're creating at the same time. So you're, it's, it's, it's a continuous rewrite. And that's why for me, this took two years to just to be able to develop those ideas and how to, and how to rewrite and, and, and incorporate what I was learning into the rewrite. Yeah. In, in, if, yeah, um, uh, there were no relationships in this film because relationships are not efficient. They're just not efficient. It's more efficient to get work from people if they're single individual entities rather than if they were in, in a couple and were, de- were dedicating time and effort to, towards their relationship ab- above and beyond the work that they needed to be doing. Um, and because they were trying to limit the number of people that were destroying the world, you had to get, this is all backstory that isn't, like, <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, it has nothing to do. You, you, um, but because, uh, it, because they had to limit the number of people to be able to live in that world and the number of people who could eventually destroy the world, you, you had to get a permit to, to be able to have a child and you would then have to apply for permits to, 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 to have children and children were only necessary if they were furthering the cause of the community, you know? So it, it's, it's relationships don't work in a space um, where relationships are deemed to be unimportant or um, take away from what is the goal and the goal is efficiency and the goal was recycling. Um, yeah, so that's why. Go ahead. Exactly. Who sent her the bloody soil? Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, I mean, in my head, the people living on the outside, I think that there's a, there's a group of anarchists who are living on the outside who actually know the truth, you know, and who sent her the soil. Um, but... Um, uh, like these eco-warriors is what I like to imagine that they are. But um, 
for me, it's, it's, it wasn't important because all I was trying to do is tell a story about Asha. I wasn't trying to tell the story about the whole world. I was trying to tell a story about Asha and how Asha comes to a place of sacrifice and how she decides to, to make the ultimate sacrifice for the sake of something else, right? For, for, for nature. And as a result of that conversation, the other conversations were not as necessary. So yes, I know a lot about the world, but it's not necessary in order to be able to tell that one single story about Asha and her relationship with this plant. Um, and, and then it just becomes, it just, it, it, it's, it focuses on what is necess- what, what you need to tell that particular story and then what is ego. You know what I mean? Because the rest of it is not, it's, it's, you, you can know it, but you don't need to show the world that you know it. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, who, uh, uh, the dictator. Um, we managed to elect him out finally. <laughs> but at the time that he was, he was battling with uh, Wagai Mathai, it was, it was a huge battle because he was actually land grabbing and she, and she recognized that and she called it out. Um, and he was trying to sell land to people in his government. But that land had actually been designated as public land. Um, so forests, he was trying to sell forests. And he was trying to sell um, uh, national parks. Um, and national parks in the middle of a city as well. Um, and no, that was only uh, when she, they were demonstrating political prisoners. That was when they were releasing, when they were... Tr- so as to demonstrate mothers of political prisoners and Wagari Mathai, to demonstrate the government taking political prisoners, they did something that is, is a very traditional thing. And in or, when you, when as a Gekoya woman, who, which is one of the nations of Kenya, when you are um, cursing somebody, or when you're cursing somebody who's younger than you or your children, or... Um, or the, the biggest insult would be to show them your bare body so they undressed in public to be able to demonstrate what their government was doing. It is pretty strong. I'm not sure I could do it. Um, you built a really fascinating world with such a large number of citizens. Did you storyboard? Absolutely. Oh my gosh, yes. Thank you for that question. So what we did uh, when we were creating this film, because we knew we had very little time and we needed to be able to count the number of, of, of shots, of, of special effects shots that we we're going to do. So we went to the location with a stand-in and we photographed the storyboard, every moment of it. Um, so we, ha- we actually had a physical photographed storyboard right? So we knew what was possible. So we basically shot the film first on, on, on stills. And what we weren't able to put in stills, we then we, we, we drew as a storyboard. And then we're able to count how many uh, effects that we needed for each. 
Absolutely. Even before we shot it, we knew exactly how we were going to um, how we were going to build it, how we we're going to shoot it, what extra lights we needed to bring in, um, how we were going to build out the space. Uh, we, yeah. So, and every day our job was just to be able to get we and and because we we shot this in uh, I think we shot it in five days, right? And because we we had such a tight t- amount of time, we were only able to shoot exactly what we storyboarded. There was we didn't have the we didn't have the luxury of being able to do any extra shots. Go ahead. So this is quite an otherworldly film, and I was just curious how your process for building this world would differ from, like, with Rafiki, which is in our world, but you're still making a lot of decisions on how you're framing that world and what pieces of that world you're showing and how you're showing it. Do you do the same kind of notebooks? Or do you just like I do, but that one, I think when I'm, when I'm creating uh, primary world, world building, I concentrate on the characters. So I build the inner worlds of characters. I build the spaces that they live in. I know the references of the artists that they're going to have, what they're going to have on their walls, and I start to build that. So that's the way I, I come into that world, is I think about a character, and then I, I literally start to build their space out from inside in, who they are, what they would have on their walls, why they would have it on their walls, and then, and then, and, and then start to do that and then move into their world. What is their outside world? What is their outside world in contrast to their inside world? So the the decisions that I was making with Rafiki were where do the girls feel safe? Where don't they feel safe? How do we create sound? How do we use sound and and colors to be able to create um, spaces of safety and spaces of places where they don't feel safe? And then we built it out like that in in, in the same way. Yeah. Um, Sorry. Hi. (laughs) Hi. Could you ask your question again? Create images of hope and joy.
Right. Right. So controlling narrative um, and using it to be able to tell the stories that, that, that I think are important to me. Right or to us. So the one thing that we've been that we've been very clear about, or that the one thing that we're trying to create as, as a result of Afro Bubblegum, is is funding. It's create funding sources that so that people can can live in their imagination and can use their imagination in order to be able to tell stories. Because unfortunately, at the moment, we do not control a lot of the funding that comes from culture, and a lot of the cultural funding at the moment in in in, in a lot of sub-Saharan Africa comes either from NGOs or from foreign agencies, and they decide what is what narrative they want to be told. Right. Um, so when we were creating Pumzi and when we were creating Rafiki, even though we were using foreign funding, we were very, very clear about the artistic direction of the film. And because we were independent filmmakers, we, we managed to keep creative control of the film from beginning to end. And at any point that anybody suggested, which has often been suggested, that the work was, was, was not in keeping with what the narrative that others wanted us to tell, we would push back and we would say, this is, this is the story of us and lean firmly into the story of us. Because there's no person who's better able to tell our stories than ourselves. And the only way that we can do that is by standing firm and saying, we know ourselves better, and we are then able to tell our stories better. Because a lot of, a lot of resistance that happened as a result of Pumzi and Rafiki is that my, my work has often been called un-African or not African enough which makes no sense. I don't know what that means. It makes no sense. Um, and, and, and often the people who were saying that were people who haven't even visited the continent. <laughs> um, so we had many co-producers suggesting what was an African narrative to, to, to put into the film. So it wasn't only happening from, a, from the point of view of NGOs and... Um, and, and foreign policies, but it was also happening from financiers um, and, and producers who felt they had a better grasp on how the story should be told above and beyond myself, who was living in the country and who, was, who, who knew the, 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 the voice of, of the people. Um, and, 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 and that's the only time that we can truly lean in and just say, great. Or, or, or make that sign that they've made earlier, which is, you know, stop and let people speak and, let, and, and, and be the person in control of the narrative at that point. Um, but it's, it's a constant battle because there is a story that completely breaks my heart that I heard about a friend of mine who's, a, who's also a filmmaker and she's an extraordinary filmmaker. And to make money, she went to an NGO to make a story about modern day slavery of women. And she created this very, very... Uh, painful, but just um, incredibly beautiful film about this this woman who was being put, who who was being sold into slavery, into modern day slavery. And when she went back to show it to the people who um, who who had paid her to make it, they suggested that the woman that she had chosen was not pretty enough. 
and that they, she should go back and reshoot with a prettier woman to be able to suggest the pain of it, which was I, I thought was, you know what I mean? But those are the things that, that filmmakers have to, storytellers, go through <laughs> in order to be able to tell uh, stories, and, and their story is, is even the ones that they try and tell of their own experience is, is still not fitting in with other people's ideas of what, what they should be. No, that's fine. I hope I answered your question. Give thanks. Thank you so much. Yeah. Give thanks. Okay. We have one more question. Absolutely amazing for sharing all of that knowledge and information. Um, can we thank you? Yeah, thank you so much. The Big Screen Symposium is brought to you by Script to Screen and Janda. We would like to thank our event partners, the New Zealand Film Commission, New Zealand On Air, Images and Sound, Screen Auckland and Stage and Screen Travel Services. Voiceover was provided by Samantha Dukes and music by Poddington Bear.